Amen. Isn't it good to be in the Lord's presence? Isn't it good to have the Holy Spirit among us as God's people in this sacred space? Thanks for that reminder, Aaron, Allison, Gwen. It's neat to, uh, thanks, Brad. It's neat to, um, to worship with you all in person again as people continue to come back uh, after COVID stuff, but it's wonderful to have Aaron Duncan, our minister of music is worship, and it's wonderful to have Aaron Legrone as well. Aaron and I have been working together for over 10 years, I think, uh, since Forest Hills, uh, and Gwen and Allison were in the youth group when I was the youth pastor at Forest Hills, and Aaron led worship for us, and now Aaron and Allison are married. They got to do their wedding. That sounds scandalous, but he assures me he never knew her when she was in the youth group, but uh, they connected in the young adult ministry uh, years after she graduated high school. So I'm sure, I'm assure you it's all perfectly kosher and, and holy. And uh, I got to do their premarital counseling and their wedding several years ago. It's just neat to see how the Lord is using them and continue uh, to bless them and to lead us in worship. And Gwen's mom, Stacy, was one of our youth workers for many years. She and Morgan taught together for a long time. So just neat to see uh, God's ministry come full circle as they lead us in worship. Thank you all for leading us this morning to the throne of God and into the, the presence of the Holy Spirit, who is, uh, we are more aware of his presence with us, uh, thanks to you guys. So appreciate it. We're going to continue our series in March in the book of Isaiah talking about a light in the darkness. We're going to look at another passage. I told uh, Morgan, her sister's visiting this weekend, I said, it's kind of another weird passage uh, in Isaiah this week. And a lot of the passages in Isaiah are dark. There's a lot of darkness in the, the book of Isaiah because God's people were not making good choices. At my house, we talk a lot about making good choices. You parents of young kids know what I'm talking about. These people were not making good choices, and therefore darkness was all around them. And if you're like me, I think we're tempted to look around at the dark days that we're living in and lament them and say, oh, we are really living in some perilous times now. You know, look at where the country's headed. Look at how sin has pervaded our culture. Kids these days, I, you know, I, I say these things, okay? Even Evan and I, our youth pastor, we're laughing about how we are lamenting kids these days. But the truth is that we're not the first people to live through tough times. We're not even the first people to live through a pandemic. We're not the first people to deal with racial injustice. We're not the first people to deal with political turmoil and strife. We're not the first people to deal with a declining morality in our culture either. God's people have time and time again found themselves in these very sad and difficult times. And what matters for us, especially as God's people, is how we live out those days, how we endure, how we hope during those days. How will we choose to walk through dark and difficult times? Will we whine and complain? I can do that all day. I'm really good at, at whining and, and complaining. Will we get angry with God? Will we look to other sources for our hope and to satisfy us or to deliver us through the difficult times that we're living in? We're gonna see all of those play out in our text for today in Isaiah chapter eight, 
verse 9 through Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. I think it's important for us to remember that with the God of creation, when we're dealing with the God who's over all of the universe, when we're dealing with the high and holy triune God, there is always hope. Isaiah loves to, you know, we're watching movies in the mornings on Saturdays. We'll go get donuts and watch the Lord of the Rings, you know, and Star Wars movies and things that, that my wife doesn't love necessarily, but that the kids are really into. And uh, Isaiah, our, our four-year-old, will say, oh, the bad guys are winning. Bad guys are winning big time. Dad, this doesn't look good. Bad guys are winning. And he can tell. And he knows that just when it looks like the bad guys are going to win, that the good guys turn the tide somehow. That's what we see happen over and over again in Scripture as well. In our text for this month, we're going to see that a great light is promised to God's people. And remember that back in chapter 2, one of my favorite passages in all of Isaiah, chapter 2, verse 4, you see that what could be with God, that one day there's this great hope that God's going to prevail, and that he's going to judge between the nations, and he's going to decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. Ain't going to study war no more. Ain't going to study war no more. O house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let us walk in the light. Isaiah is pleading with God's people. Let's, let's, let's come together and walk in the light of God's goodness. We don't have to live in the dark anymore. That's where we're going this whole month with these themes of darkness and light. And we're going to see that nothing stands against the light that is promised to the world. And the light that is coming is not a vaccine. The light that is coming is not a new political leader. The light that's coming is not any kind of worldly uh, power. As we just sang, no thing can compare with our living hope, which is rooted in a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. So how do we live in the meantime? How do we live when we look for deliverance? Our text for today, again, brings some insight. We ended last week's sermon on kind of a dire note. Uh, the, the verses 5 through 8 of chapter 8 talk about the judgment that will not only come upon Israel in the north, but also upon Judah in the south. Let's recap quickly the history again, the situation. Let's uh, show these maps. Uh, you see that the kingdom of Israel had, had split. Ten tribes of the, the 12 tribes of Israel basically seceded and said, we're out of here. We're doing our own thing apart from the Davidic throne. And they started this northern kingdom of Israel, also known as Ephraim. And then the, the, the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, that stayed faithful to the Davidic throne in Jerusalem, they formed the kingdom of Judah in the south. And they were beset on all sides by these other kingdoms, Moab, Edom, Syria, Ammon. You have the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Syrians, who are all encroaching upon these kingdoms. But the main threat, remember, that's looming over the whole story, go to the next slide, is Assyria. Assyria had emerged as this cruel and brutal regime, this kingdom that was just absolutely taking over kingdom after kingdom as they expanded their empires as far as Ur is in the east all the way to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. 
They were the dominant power, and that threat was looming over the people during Isaiah's time. But here's the thing. The Assyrians were nothing more than an instrument in God's hand because he's the one who's holding all the pieces. He's the one who's moving everything on the world stage in order to lovingly bring his children back to himself. The Assyrians are nothing more than a tool in the sovereign Lord's hands as he brings discipline and judgment on his own people as an act of love, as a loving father would who disciplines their own child when that child is in danger of going into destruction, so does our God unleash the Assyrians on his own people as an act of loving discipline. So we're going to finish Isaiah's message here about Judah, the southern kingdom, walking in darkness today. And then next week, our very capable Evan Koontz, minister to students, uh, Aaron Duncan will be back. And it's my turn to go to the beach next week uh, with my family. And uh, Aaron, uh, Aaron will lead us in worship. And then Evan will bring us uh, a word from God's uh, message from Isaiah chapter 9 about Israel, the northern kingdom, and how they also failed to trust in God's good light. But God's grace would also prevail, just like it does in Judah. God's grace is evident here in the rest of chapter 8. Uh, the rest of chapter 8, after the judgment that's pronounced on Judah and Israel, we see that Ahaz, remember King Ahaz at this time, he had long forgotten the old covenant that God had made with his great, 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 great grandfather, King David. I left out some greats if you're fact-checking me. Okay, that's more than that uh, even, but... He had made this covenant with King David and said, the scepter will never depart from your kingdom, that you will, your family, your dynasty will reign on the throne forever, predicting that Jesus Christ would come from the line of David. But Ahaz forgot about that, and he was terrified at the prospect of a foreign invasion. And what's worse is that his people followed his lead, and Isaiah tells us they were shaking like a leaf in the wind, they were so scared at the prospect of a foreign invasion. Their enemies were gathering at their doorstep, and yet the Lord, in his grace, would preserve for himself a remnant. Do you know what a remnant is? It's a really important word in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The dictionary defines a remnant as a small quantity that's left over, that's remaining, but there's so much more to it in the Bible than just that. There's something in, in our human nature that necessitates the concept of a remnant in Scripture. Because in our fallen tendencies, we resist God's blessing. We resist God's protection. We resist God's provision for us. And therefore, only a faithful core group remain. We've talked before about how unconverted evangelicals fill the pews of our churches all across this town and this country and in the West. There are plenty of people to whom Jesus will say on that last day, I never knew you. They have no real trusting relationship with the Lord through Jesus Christ by grace through faith. We know that that's how it works, that there is a remnant of actual converted children of God. So the question is, how do you know if you're part of the remnant or not? How do you know if, if you're 
part of the faithful group that's remaining. Here in our text, we're going to see three marks, three distinguishing characteristics of the remnant of God. The people that are truly the, the preserved remaining group will see that first, the remnant is known by the presence of God. They are marked by the presence of God. God with them, God in their lives, they are aware of his presence as we just sang. First look at chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. Be broken, you peoples. This is Isaiah prophesying to the invading forces. Be broken and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor. Go ahead, he says, and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. What is the Hebrew word for God is with us? You know this. It's Emmanuel. Emmanuel is the actual word here. He says, go ahead, strap on your armor. Emmanuel. God is with us. Even when the majority of folks in Judah are, are shaking and they're scrambling around like, get some spears, we got to fight these guys. The remnant says, go ahead, strap on your armor. You can't hurt us. Nothing you do, no weapon formed against us will stand. Whom shall I fear? Whom shall be against us? No one. The Lord of angel armies is on our side. God is with us, Emmanuel. And one day God would indeed come to his people in the flesh. He would move into the neighborhood. And through his death and resurrection, we can now be born into a living hope. Jesus, the one who embodied Emmanuel, told us that yes, in this world, we will have trouble. We will have trials. We will have tribulation. But take heart for I have overcome the world. That means in New Testament terms, what 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 says, everyone who's been born of God, born again into a living hope, overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith gives us the victory over anything this world throws at us. How is that? Because through faith, we understand that God is with us in a special way, in a unique way, and nothing will stand against him. And that makes us happy. That makes us satisfied. That, that allows us to have a confident defiance in the face of the trials of this world. That doesn't mean that it's always going to come easy. That doesn't mean that we're always going to win in earthly terms. But our victory is so much greater than any earthly win. In 1852, there was a story that came back to England about a group of missionaries, a small band of British missionaries led by a guy named Alan Gardiner. Alan Gardiner was a former Royal Navy uh, captain who had converted to Anglicanism and he was now a, a minister, an Anglican, a, a priest in the Anglican church. He took along a young surgeon who was also a Methodist lay minister named Richard Williams. And they were determined and they were called by the Lord to go to the very southern tip of South America. You know what that's called? The 
Tierra del Fuego, they call it, where Chile and Argentina meet right there at the very southernmost tip. And it's freezing cold down there, you know, kind of near Antarctica. And they made their way to go evangelize the Yagan people, the indigenous peoples of Tierra del Fuego. And on their way there, they were forced to winter in a very cold and bitter bay off the coast of Argentina. And they were waiting for a supply ship. And while they were waiting, every single person on their ship died. They all died. They all died of either scurvy or starvation or some combination of the two. And on Good Friday, April 18th, 1851, Richard Williams wrote in his journal, Poor and weak though we are, our abode is a very Bethel to our souls. And God we feel and know is here. They were aware of his presence, even in the midst of suffering. A couple weeks later, on Wednesday, May 7th, his final entry in his journal said, Should anything prevent my ever adding to this, let all my beloved ones at home rest assured that I was happy beyond all expression the night I wrote these lines and would not have changed situations with any living man. Let them also be assured that my hopes were full and blooming with immortality, that heaven and love and Christ, which mean one and the same divine thing, were in my heart, that the hope of glory, the hope laid up for me in heaven, filled my whole heart with joy and gladness, and that to me to live is Christ and die is gain. He actually believed that. Do you really believe that? Sometimes the supply ship doesn't come. You know that from experience. In those times, for the remnant, God can make even the most dire of circumstances into a very Bethel, which means the dwelling place of God. He shows up. He is with us. He is Emmanuel in those times. What else do we need? Let's go on to the second, part, uh, second mark. The second thing that marks God's remnant is that they fear what they ought to fear. They, they do fear. It's okay to be afraid, but they place their fear where it should be. Look at verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 11 through 15. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary, and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. A trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. You see in this text that the strong hand of God is upon him. He receives this message in a powerful way. Don't call conspiracy what everybody else is calling conspiracy. And don't fear what they fear. Don't be in dread like them. I've heard a few conspiracy theories lately. Is that too soon? I didn't write this. Okay, this is from the word of the Lord. Uh, social media is, of course, abounding with different conspiracy theories. 
on both sides of the political aisle, okay? I'm not calling one side out, all right? Everybody does this. There are always people in our society who will panic and, and point to what they think is unfolding behind the scenes in order to stir up fear. Again, that's nothing new, okay? Fear is an amazing tool for getting elected or for uh, raising money, but fear is a terrible thing for faith. When we are afraid of the wrong things, it kills our faith. You can get a lot of people on board with your cause by scaring them to death, but you can't get them to believe in what's right and what's true and what's good through scare tactics. I'm not saying that the remnant doesn't fear. I'm saying that their fear is rightly placed. The only thing they fear is God because they dare not overlook him. They dare not. They know that ultimately he's in charge of all these events that are unfolding around them. And by fearing him, they stabilize themselves on the rock that will not be moved in the midst of these swirling changes, changing circumstances. They're able to stand firm no matter what comes, knowing that their God is with them and that everything is under his control. Judah was under attack, yes, but the remnant placed their fear in the proper place. We would do well to remember there's only one to fear. And what do we mean when we say fear God? We're not talking about like cowering, being afraid of God. We're talking about rightly reverenting God, about treating God as God, about knowing who God is, his holiness, his perfection, his incredible power and glory, and then rightly knowing who we are in light of that. That leads to a proper reverence, a proper fear of God. They use the word dread. Isaiah uses the word dread, having a proper dread of what truly is powerful and all-consuming. You know, a lot of Christians live as functional atheists. We're afraid of things that don't really matter. You know, I was telling a friend here, oh, I, I need to have this conversation, but I'm scared to have this conversation because I'm afraid of what this person might say or what these people might say. And he reminded me there's only one person to, to fear. There's only one whose opinion you should dread. There's only one who you have to impress. And his name is Emmanuel. You know, people who are uh, functioning as atheists don't fear God, but they fear things that are fleeting and temporary in this world. The way in which you think of God is going to determine how you experience God. Look at verse 14 again. It starts out, he will become a sanctuary. God will become a sanctuary and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Which one is God to you? Is he a house of holy refuge or is he a trap to you? The way that you think of him is going to make you feel either trapped or safe. If we acknowledge him as who he is, the sovereign Lord of all, then we're going to understand the perfect peace and rest that exists in the sanctuary of God's house. But if we trust in other worldly things, here's the thing, it's not like God's gonna go away. He's still there as God. He doesn't cease to be the high and holy God. Therefore, we end up inevitably colliding with him and tripping over him as a snare. Which one is he to you? Finally, the third and, and final mark of God's remnant is that they're set apart by the truth of God, the very 
word of God, which is a firm foundation on which to stand. Look at verse 16. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. Isaiah is basically saying here, preserve this truth for a generation who will believe it. Is that our generation? I hope so. You know, to the remnant, the truth of God is more compelling than anything else in this world. Therefore, the the remnant becomes a prophetic voice in their generation. They speak truth to power. They speak truth in a world that needs it. Look at verse 17. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and yet I will still hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. A believing remnant speaks God's truth and shows his signs into an unbelieving world. But the hypocrites, the majority in Isaiah's day and maybe in our day too, choose a darkness that falls with increasing devastation. They scramble to find hope in anything else besides the Lord and his word. Look at verse 19. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Of course not. Isaiah is exposing the fallacy in in running to these mediums and these necromancers, the dead that they can speak to. Why do they look for a living word among the dead? That is futile. But people who reject God's truth have no realization of this. Look at verse 20. To the teaching and to the testimony. He's saying run to the truth. Run to the good truth of God. If they will not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. They continue to walk in darkness. They don't have the light of illumination to show them the error of their ways. They don't realize it, of course, but they're choosing an incredibly difficult path. It's not going to end well. Look at verses 21 and 22. They'll pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they're hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. That's what happens when people blame God. And they'll look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. The gloom of anguish is the result the inevitable result of following an alternate reality apart from the Lord. But here's the beautiful thing. Chapter 9, we have this beautiful hope, this turn, an incredible promise. The gloom of anguish that we just talked about here gives way to a word of hope that no one could have seen coming. Look at verses 1 and 2. There will be no gloom of anguish for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. I know some of you all been to Galilee. I see Ed shaking his head over there. Galilee was in the northern part of Judah. Remember whenever invading hordes came, who was the first one to get wiped out? Galilee. 
But guess where Jesus lived? The hometown of Emmanuel, the light of the world, was in Nazareth of Galilee. The Galileans knew suffering. They knew slavery. They knew despair. But God turned invasion into mission by making the people of Galilee the first ones to see the light of God with us. The ones walking in darkness suddenly found themselves blinking under a bright new light that they never could have expected. Isaiah foresaw this day when God would come to his remnant and make them into an unstoppable force. Look at the next verse, verse three. You've multiplied the nation. Keep going, verse three there, Will. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. You see what God has done. He's multiplied his people. He's, the long-awaited harvest has come and the remnant has now become a mighty nation reaping the fruits of its crop, a crop that they did not plant. And therefore, a miraculous joy breaks out over God's people. They celebrate like the winning team in the Super Bowl locker room. I love those shots. Those guys are going crazy in the locker room afterwards, right? And here's the thing. Even if they're the backup kicker, they still get to celebrate with the rest of the team. They still get a ring, even though they didn't make the play. We didn't do anything to save ourselves, but we get to celebrate the victory is ours through Christ. So who's the hero then? Who's this MVP that bursts onto the world stage? Look at verse six. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. God's answer to the mighty Assyrian armies, to the empires of Greece and Rome, is a child. God answers the bullies of history, not by becoming a bigger bully, but by coming as a baby, because the weakness of God overcomes the strength of this world. The gospel is a subversive truth that overturns all the prevailing conventional wisdom of this world. God would come as a baby, but not just any baby. He would be the wonderful counselor, the one who knows exactly how to help us thrive and flourish. He would be the mighty God, the one who rules over all creation. He'd be the everlasting father, the one who loves us perfectly and causes us to be his adopted children, beloved children. He'd be the prince of peace, the one who breaks down the dividing wall of hostility between him and others. History is going his way. How do we know this will happen? The most important words are in verse seven. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David. Over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. How do we know it will happen? Because God is zealous to make his plans happen. He will do this. Do we believe it or not? Are we part of the remnant? Or are we going to choose other worldly things? Are we going to continue to go our way and resist God's way? Or are we going to be faithful to be marked by God's presence, to fear what we ought to fear, and then forever and ever to trust that he is going to deliver us into the way that he is going. Let's start living into that reality today.
and then increase even more in the triumph and the celebration that he will prevail, that his light has stood against the darkness and nothing will overcome it. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the promise in your word that shows us that even though we live in dark days, that your light is going to win. That one day you will uh, come again and finish the work of redemption that you started so long ago when you came as a baby, born as the, the mighty God, the wonderful counselor, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. God, we know you to be those things in our heads, but our hearts continue to run after the things of this world. God, help our hearts to know the love that you have poured into us to be more satisfying, more perfect, more complete as you zealously go about fulfilling your good purposes for all of creation. And you're using us, God, to be a part of that. God, who are we that you would come to rescue us in the flesh, that you would use us as your faithful remnant to be the conduit of your blessing? God, I pray that you would help us to remember to fear not the things of this world, but to properly reverent you as God and to remember that we are dust that you have breathed life into and that our life is but a vapor. Our earthly life is just a candle that will be snuffed out, the mist that's gone tomorrow, but that through you, through our Lord Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, we are born again into a living hope, one that will not spoil, perish, or fade, and that we know that our hope is sure and certain, that beyond this life, we have abundant life forever with you, not just in heaven, God, but in the new heavens and new earth, that we will reign with you as co-heirs throughout all eternity. Lord, such news is too wonderful for us to fathom, but I pray that you would help us to leave this place today compelled to live out our trust, to live out our faith in you, to live out our proper fear, to not be scared of what people think, but only what you think, God. May we play our part as your faithful remnant. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Amen. We're going to ask you to, to have a time of response now. Everyone is invited to respond. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've never put your trust in him for the first time, there's no better time to do so than right now. I'll be here and, and I'd love to talk with you about that right now. If you want to join Woodmont Baptist Church as a member and be a part of what God's doing here, it's an exciting time, guys. Uh, just need to see classes coming back. It's neat to see uh, mission continue to go forth. It's exciting to see members come and join. Uh, we just know that God has the next 80 years of this church's future, just like its last 80 years, even better. Going to continue to use this church to change lives for eternity. If you want in on that, come see me and talk about church membership. If you've never been baptized, if you have never had that beautiful outward expression of the inward reality that you've died yourself and been raised into a whole new kind of life. I'd love to talk with you about being baptized. Whatever it is that you need to do, we invite you to, to stand at this time to sing, It Is Well With My Soul. No matter what you're going through, can you respond in that way? Let's stand and sing this song as we have a time of response.